It is the Jesus who is prepared to die the death of the cross for us, who is in control of the universe. What opportunities do I now have to glorify him? You're listening to 1A, a podcast from First Presbyterian Church, Episode 7. Last week, we said that we were going to try and get Dr. Thomas to join us, to get his thoughts on what's happened here in Columbia. And it's a pleasure to report that's exactly what we've done in this episode. I'm Josh Squires, the Minister of Counseling and Congregational Care here at First Press. Welcome to The 1A, a podcast designed to look at how to apply biblical principles in our day-to-day lives. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for coming. We hope this ministry is a blessing to you and those around you. For more information, you can check us out on our website, which is firstprescolumbia.org forward slash 1A. That's firstprescolumbia.org forward slash 1A. You can find all our episodes there, as well as links on how to subscribe. If this is a ministry that you enjoy, then we would appreciate it if you would subscribe using the application of your choice and leave us some comments. As we increase the number of reviews and comments, it becomes easier for others to find our podcast. Speaking of comments, we'd love to receive your feedback by email, tweet, text, or call. We're hoping that we can dedicate an entire episode upcoming to just listener feedback. Go to our website to find out how to contact us. Today we're going to be looking at where God is in the midst of crisis, why his sovereignty brings comfort, whether it's okay to be angry, and the surprising resilience of God's people. Before we get into our interview, let me take a moment to tell you, in case you didn't notice already, that this episode is much longer than our normal episodes. It's been our intention from the beginning to periodically do what we are calling a deep dive on a topic. That is to explore it at length rather than just take a cursory glimpse. And so this, unplanned as it was, is our inaugural deep dive episode as we look at the theology behind those that are in crisis. We hope you enjoy it and would love to receive your feedback. Dr. Thomas, uh, would you help us? Why are we taking a break from our normal series on desire to speak about crisis? Well, uh, 10 days ago, uh, the thousand year flood uh, hit Columbia, South Carolina. Uh, a massive amount of uh, water fell, uh, rainfall. Um, I, the figures that I heard were we get an average of 40 inches of rain a year in South Carolina, and we had 20 inches in one day. And uh, so as a consequence, uh, we and it was localized uh, in certain parts of uh, the city. This isn't like Katrina or Hugo or other uh, catastrophes that affect enormous uh, geographical areas. Uh, the, this was fairly confined, though the eventual devastation uh, was was similar, and uh, thousands of people have been affected by it, uh, particularly, as I said, in certain parts of the city. And um, some have lost everything, and there are particular traumas and experiences that are associated with the loss of everything and the displacement um, from one's home and the uncertainty about about the future and 
the paralysis uh, that comes in the face of a thousand decisions that need to be made that one doesn't normally uh, make in a lifetime, uh, and now they're having to be made in a few days. So I, I guess that's why we're we're recording this program. Yes. You know, when we began to hear some of the stories come out that Sunday night, my family and I prayed, and my seven-year-old daughter asked the question, did God want this to happen? How would you answer a seven-year-old that question? Well, I think it's always important to answer a seven-year-old truthfully. Mm. Uh, I, I don't think it serves them or, or us to f- fabricate the answer. And uh, so in one sense, you know, everything that happens, you know, God is in it in some form or fashion. And for me, nothing happens without God willing it to happen and without God willing it to happen before it happens and without God willing it to happen in the way that it happens. So my my belief is that in, is in total sovereignty, that there isn't a square inch of the universe or a fraction of time in which God is out of control. Of course, one needs to define what is that control and what kind of sovereignty, and uh, and, and those are much more nuanced questions. I think if I'm speaking, actually, if I'm speaking to adults, it would be the same way, but if I'm speaking to children, you know, I would want to be careful so as to... Um, convey the thought that sovereignty is always Christ's sovereignty. Hmm. The God who is in control is Jesus, and not some scary monster, not some some blind force hiding in a cupboard. You don't know who they are, what they are, if I'm speaking to a seven-year-old. Um, so so I, would, I would want to put it in the form of, you know, Jesus never wants anything but our good and, and anything that he does is for our good and I think that putting hands and feet onto that sovereignty it is the Jesus who sat in a boat and slept who is in control of the universe it is the Jesus who was prepared to die the death of the cross for us who is in control of the universe and I think I'd want to approach questions about suffering, you know, with 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 an understanding that Jesus is right here in the midst of this suffering. I'm not denying the role of the Father or the Holy Spirit, but I think for a six or seven year old, I, I think that's probably a, an easier concept. Mm. Anything that you would want to nuance differently if it were an adult that you were talking to rather than a child. Well, if I'm speaking to an adult, uh, you know, you've got you've got a couple of choices here when it comes to evil, and one choice is to say that you know God is mostly in control. If He's not in control at all, I don't know why you believe what you believe, and what what is the point of of belief? It, it's mere sentimentality. But you can say God is in control of most things, but He's not in control of everything, and there are a lot of so-called Christians who believe that sort of thing and at certain times and in certain events um, some other force is is sovereign, gains gains precedence over God's control and sovereignty. And that may be nature or it may be just 
random ideas about the fallenness of the universe, or it may be something more precise like the devil or or supernatural evil powers or something of that nature. Um, but an, an orthodox Christian belief, which is the, the only one that I'm wanting to defend here, is is that God is in absolute and total control that of him and to him and through him are all things mm. uh, to whom be praise forever and and you know you and I have both been talking to people uh, in the last few days who have who are experiencing great trials and uh, and it's not peculiar to this particular crisis that we find ourselves in but people Christians who find themselves diagnosed with cancer that potentially threateningly could be fatal but at the very least is is going to is saying to them that the future is now very uncertain and is going to be very difficult mm. in more ways than one and um, you will find them saying uh, that uh, the Lord is in control mm. it is the basis of their prayer because if if God is in control, what are you praying for, and what what are you expecting to get as a result of this prayer? Um, you know, you either believe that life is, you know, um, a, a bit of a gamble, and sometimes you win and sometimes you lose, and that's true for God too. Or you believe that God is in control; He allows certain things to happen. And, and let's use that word allows for now. Mm. He allows certain things to happen. He, he, he works his, his control and sovereignty, you know, is, is not over our heads, but he works in and through us and in and through means and, and in and through, you know, rain and, and, and wind and storm and hurricane and so on. And, uh, but, but, there is no comfort outside of absolute sovereignty mm. and absolute control. There's no comfort in the idea that you can turn a corner and you find yourself in a certain part of the neighborhood where God isn't in control anymore. I mean, that's a scary thought. You know, the very basis of our, of our belief in prayer means that in every situation, in every context, God is able. Mm. Now, whether God wants to do what you want is another question, uh, and and then we're facing some different things. Our limited understanding, our limited knowledge, the good that God has in, in view may transcend the smallness of the perspective that we have. We We, we think of me and mine and and my comfort and so on and they're very legitimate things to think of of course but god may have a bigger picture i was talking somewhere in the last couple of weeks and it's been a busy time so i can't quite put all the things together now but i, I spoke on john 9 uh, this is the story of uh, the blind man uh, who was born blind and in John chapter 9. And the disciples come to Jesus and say, who sinned? Was it him or was it his parents? Hmm. And I was trying to make the point that the disciples are wholly locked into 
a discussion about causation. That, that, that was, what has gripped them is why has God done this? Was it, it was evidently punishment. That seems to be the only conclusion they have. It was punishment. But was it for him or was it for his parents? I mean, somebody sinned. You reap what you sow. It's very much the theology of Job's three friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, who that was righteous uh, um, ever suffered, which is Eliphaz's opening gambit in in his response to Job's suffering. And I said, you know, Jesus' perspective is entirely different. It's not that Jesus um, thinks that the question about causation is a wrong question. He, he just completely avoids that question what what he does is he talks about opportunity hmm. and and remember the answer that he gave to the disciples uh, neither you know who sinned was it him or his parents and he said neither but that the works of god might be made manifest in him in other words that this suffering and, and it's real suffering and real tragedy has an opportunity to bring blessing in some form in some fashion and in this instance, you know, God heals him. That's not to say that in every instance God heals. That's not always the blessing God intends. Mm. And sometimes the blessing God intends is to take us home, mm. to be with himself. Mm. And, and ultimately that is a greater blessing, mm. though we might not be able to appreciate that here and now. Mm. Uh, so, so I think that's important that the disciples are asking a question that frankly we couldn't answer. Mm. Um, and Jesus is answering a question that has opportunity written all over it. And and I think that's the challenge in the midst of suffering. Not why did this happen to mm. me, mm. although that question is going to arise, but rather what opportunities do I now have to glorify him? How can I use this to bre- to best bring him glory? Mm. That's a great segue into my next question, which is for those who are dealing with this, uh, either for those who have lost so much in the midst of something like this, or for those who are helping, trying to help our uh, brothers and sisters in Christ who have lost so much, what are some scriptures that they can be meditating on Oh, that's a, that's a good question. Um, and, you know, all, I'm, I'm almost tempted to say that, that any scripture is, is relevant. I think in a time of crisis, though, one falls back on scriptures that are meaningful to us. Mm. I, I don't mean to be misunderstood by that, but there are some, some, Passages of scripture that mean a great deal to us, uh, Psalm 23 or, or, or Romans chapter 8, especially mm-hmm. the second half of it. Um, they come to us, uh, with a fresh sense of stability. And mm-hmm. I think that one of the things in a trial that, that is so terrifying is, is the loss of stability. The ground gives way. Tomorrow appears now to be altogether uncertain. We may, we may find ourselves, and, and you and I have both found this to be true in the last few days, that people get paralyzed, hmm. that there's a paralysis that comes in the wake of 
a trial. People don't know what to do, and they kind of freeze up. Mm. And 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 that can be explained in a number of ways, psychologically and, and temperamentally, and so on. But but I but I see that a lot. A kind of pro- there are the you know there are the go getters, and in the midst of a trial, they're off and they're running and they know what to do, and 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 so on. And there are others, and they just seem to be like deer in the headlights. And they don't know what to do, and and the latter, the deer in the headlights folk, you know, I think I think for them, they need passages of scripture that are really familiar to them, mm. you know, not oh, have you been to Habakkuk, you know, forty eight six, right? And I do know this, there's, yeah. there's not a Habakkuk forty eight six, but but what they need is stability, yeah, and contours that are very familiar to them, mm. and and so. I feel I don't feel any shame in taking them to very very familiar passages mm. of scripture and in this case you know the opening chapters of what we sometimes refer to as the second half of Isaiah mm-hmm. Isaiah uh and when you pass through the waters I will be with you and so on uh, and and those metaphors that run in chapter 40 and 41 of Isaiah and a lot of I've discovered a lot of Christians have been um, thinking about that particular passage, uh, and and um, yeah, stability. Um, is it okay for those who have been affected by this flood to feel anger at the Lord for what they've lost? Well, let's see. Uh, people do feel anger. Yes. So, so that's the reality of it. Um, and some display that anger, uh, uh, and this is your field, not so much mine. But, but, but people display that anger in different ways. And there's a there's a passive anger, mm-hmm. and there's a there's a in-your-face kind of anger and hostility. Um, sometimes that takes a while to manifest itself, and there's so much to do in the wake of a of a crisis like this one. Uh, that people keep busy, uh, and every day they're exhausted, and and tomorrow there are eighteen hundred more things to do, and and so on, and people to talk to, and it's 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 like a briefment, you know. And you and I have both talked about the six week principle. That six weeks after a briefment, it kind of hits you, and you hit a wall, and yeah. and and the people have gone, and and you're alone again, and and life is now very different. And I suspect it might be might be six weeks, it might be more in this case. But you know, this is the kind of trial that's going to be a lengthy one. And for some of our folks, you know, I, I was trying to tell somebody today, you know, it's probably not going to be Thanksgiving, which is a month away. Mm. Uh, it's probably going to be more like six months. Mm. And 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 I saw the shutters come down when I said that. Mm. Uh, but that's probably more, way more realistic, and, and in some cases it might be a year from now. Mm. So, so that's a, a long haul. Yeah. Now let me get back to your question about anger. Uh, there are certainly occasions when it is right to be angry. In fact, if you're not angry in cert- certain situations, I'm not sure that you're a Christian. Mm. You know, if the death of unborn children doesn't make you. Mm. Angry, then, then who are you and right. what are you exactly? Yeah. If, uh, you hear a story of rape, uh, as, as, as we have recently and, um, 
it, it angers you. you. You're angry and you want justice and you, and you want the perpetrator to be caught and justice to be, you, you also want to pray that this person be converted and so on. That's another part of it. But, but you also want justice and, yeah. and so there is a righteous anger, anger and Paul, um, makes that a command. Be angry and sin not. Mm. It's fascinating that he would say, be angry. And, and, you know, I don't, I don't want to play the amateur psychologist, particularly in front of you, Josh, uh, you know, with, with, cause you're a, a, somebody with a degree in counseling, but, but, you know, there is a sense in which you want to push people beyond the passive state. You know, sh- show me yeah. some reaction. Yeah. Because it's un, it's unhealthy not to. Now, I, I suspect that's not your question. And your question was, um, you know, what, what, what do we do and how do we, how do we respond to folk who are angry with God as, as say, Job becomes angry with right. God. And the, the more you walk into the pages of Job, the more angry he gets. Uh, because, because of a perceived unfairness about God's providence yeah. and that you have been singled out and others not. And, and that's, you know, that's a more tricky issue to deal with. And, you know, in this particular trial, you know, certain people in the same street were affected more than others. Mm. You know, so you, you do say, well, why, why me and not, you know, that guy across the street? Because I know a thing or two about that guy and, and, that, and it's not good. Mm. So why did he get away scot-free? Mm. And I don't have any answers to any of those questions. I mean, I don't even want to attempt to answer those questions. You know, God's ways are 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 His ways, and His thoughts are His thoughts, mm. and uh, we don't know the answer to that. Uh, mm. And the the only resolution is faith and trust. Mm. Um, you know, at, at the end of the day, that is the resolution of the Book of Job. That. Job isn't actually given an answer, but he must trust God. It's not important that we understand. It's what's important is that he understands, right? And that we trust him, right? And um, so, so anger, anger, which, which manifests itself, I think, in different forms. And there's a long-term anger. You know, I've met folk, Christian folk, you know, who are who born grudges mm-hmm. it's a form of anger and they've borne those grudges for years for decades in fact they've borne them for so long they don't know what they're angry about anymore yeah and it has affected them it has affected their personality i think and they've become kind of twisted mm. and it's very difficult and as you know each year goes by it becomes very difficult to to undo all of that yeah um so, so it is important uh to um, you know, to talk about what's happened, I, I guess, mm-hmm. on one level, um, but important too to continue. You know, I, I tell folk who are de- depressed, and I don't mean in any technical fashion. I just mean a, a general kind of. They're, mm-hmm. they're not. They're just depressed. But what do you do when you're depressed? Well, you do what you always do. You go through your routine. You get up in the morning, you have breakfast, and you, you pray, and you read the scriptures, and you go to work, and you come home. And if that doesn't, you know, if there are no sort of 
Super 10 experiences that day, well, you know, just do the same thing the next day and keep going and keep going. Mm-hmm. And, and until that, that, because rhythm yeah. is important. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Um, so you would say the same thing then about someone who is angry with the Lord in the sense that just continue to do what you are doing um, in your prayer life, in your reading of scripture. I think structure is always important in life. Okay. It's important in sanctification. It's important in, in discipleship. Um, you show me somebody who hasn't got any structure, you know, mm. and and they're moping around the house, and they and and in the end they're they're sleeping half the day, and and you know I'll show you the picture of somebody who's ultimately facing ungodliness. Mm. Mm. So so even if the clouds are down. And, and there's an array of light. Structure is still important. So, so you, you may say to yourself, well, I, I read the Bible. I get nothing out of it. Well, just keep reading. Yeah. Yeah. And whatever you do, don't stop. What has surprised you most in the midst of this? Um, well, things that shouldn't surprise me. Mm. Uh, the resilience of God's people. In, th- there are a number of things that have surprised me. One, one is, we live in a remarkable community uh, here in, in South Carolina, and people who have come into Columbia and, and other parts of our state have actually remarked on it um, that there's a lot of residual, and this is how I would explain it, there's a lot of residual common grace. There's a lot of residual um, markers of the effect of the gospel here in, in this state. So, so, so people are friendly and, and they take care of one another and they're not necessarily Christians. Mm. But there is a sense of camaraderie and friendship and, and taking care of one's neighbor and so on. So there's still, there's still the basic elements of civilization. And I think those basic elements of civilization, contrary to the ballyhoo of, of militant atheists, I think that's a, a residue of the gospel. Mm. It's what made the South, and I think I think I think the gospel did that, mm. and and I think we still see the effects of that in our community. So, mm. I I ought not to have been surprised, but but it has been a very pleasant surprise to to be to see that, mm. and what a what a blessing if you're going to be if you're going to be in a disaster, Columbia, South Carolina is the place to be in a disaster because people love you, mm. and and they're not necessarily Christians. Mm. Um, I I I think that for churches like ourselves and and many many others here in the city, uh, crises can be a real testing time. Mm. For you know what are we here for? And are we are we just here for ourselves and to take care of ourselves? Or and and this is a wider question. You know, is the church here? To, to be a witness to the community and to play a part in the community. And playing a part in the community has some consequences. And, you know, we're the big steeple church downtown, so, you know, sometimes there is the appearance, as, as our, some of our neighboring big steeple churches here downtown, can, it can give the appearance of, of being standoffish and, 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 and uncaring and so on. But I have to say... You know, seeing two, three hundred volunteers uh, go out, and I've just come back today from another 
place where um, um, 15 or 20 of our members were basically stripping down a house uh, that had been flooded and uh, that's very gratifying to see and um, one of the men passed me by I'm not quite sure who he was and I was a member of the church but he had a mask on so I I couldn't quite see who he was at first and uh, and then later I recognized when he took the mask off I recognized who he was but he said uh, we're just being the hands and feet of Jesus Hmm. and I think that that is but it's a testing time for us and uh, it 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 um, has been wonderful Mm. absolutely wonderful to see the willingness of the church um, and 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 all sections of our church I mean some are there on the ground sweating and 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 in this case actually cutting himself Mm. uh, on nails Mm. uh, ripping up floorboards Uh, but you know people people making food and and uh, people organizing and making phone calls and, and so on mm. so imagine it's five ten years from now and someone's listening to this as a leader in the church maybe a pastor an elder even Sunday school teacher um, and some sort of disaster has hit their local congregation any lessons that you would want them to learn from what we've gone through here I, I do think, and I've been saying to some of our folk this week, that what, what we do now will certainly be remembered 10 years from now, whether we did something or did nothing. Um, and this is an opportunity to do something and to do it for the Lord, and to do it because we share space together. We share we share the city together. And, uh, you know, we're not monastic in our view of Christianity. We don't, we don't this is not a cloister and we take sort of vows of 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 privacy or whatever, um, and and I do think, you know, I do think that one of the lessons I think that a lot of our folk have been thinking about this week is, you know, we are especially here at First Pres, you know, we are we are a church that loves truth and loves doctrine and loves preaching and Bible studies. And uh, there's a Bible study going on somewhere every hour of the day associated with first first prayers. Uh, you know, so so the the caricature is that we become sort of cerebral in our view of Christianity. And and you can imagine, you know, I'm not an artist in any shape, but mm-hmm. but I would draw this as a big head and and you know very tiny body. And and that's that's a caricature. It's a it's a misrepresentation of what Christianity is. And then there are people who are all about body, but they've got no heads. There's no brain there. They want to do stuff, right? But there's there's no brain to to govern what's good and what's better and what's best. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, so there there has to be there has to be, and I hate that word. Um, and I hate it so much I can't remember what it is now, but there, there, there's um, proportionality, balance uh, between head and heart or head and hands and feet. Mm. Uh, now, you know, it, it's blasé. And I'm trying not to say, you know, you walk the talk and, and talk the walk or whatever. Uh, but, I mean, basically, that's, that's what I'm saying. There's, there's a time to walk the talk. 
So in the midst of, of crisis, this is the time for leaders to act and to actually display the gospel in their actions to the community around. Right. I, I, I certainly don't want this uh, recording to sound self-congratulatory. That's, um, that's absolutely sure. not my point at all. But, you know, one of the worst things that a church can do you know, and I've been praying this week that we would avoid making this mistake and, and that I would avoid making this mistake because I've, I've heard the accusation made about someone else, you know, that they, that, that you can call and say, well, let me know what I can do, but there's, there's no follow up. That doesn't help really send a message. Let me know what I can do. People rarely will let you know what you can do. You know, you've got to go there. You could go with a shovel in your hand and a and a crowbar in your in your in the other hand and say I'm I'm here I'm ready, mm. um, and I think that's that's what what I think the church needs to 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 um, learn in part it's what I need to learn from this. Mm. Um, you know this is a this is an incredibly testing time for for some of our people, mm. and it's a testing time. On another level, for a lot of our people, for, for some, it's on a very intense level, mm. and um, they, they need to know that uh, their brothers and sisters are not just, you know, there for you, whatever mm. that means. And and then there is a level at which that that is helpful, right. that we're not alone. Um, but there's time too for you know, for tangible, um, measurable practical Christianity. Hmm. Any last words of encouragement for those who have you know, been through this or some other crisis that they're facing? Uh, words of encouragement for those who have experienced the crisis or those who are about to head into this crisis? Let's say both. Okay. Um, I think those who have passed through trials are often in a place you know when 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 somebody's diagnosed with cancer you know sometimes I'll say it won't be the first thing I do you know they they need they need time for it to sink in but to have a brother who's been through this to come alongside and say quietly yeah I've, I've been here and these are the sort of things you're going to face and these are the sort of things that are helpful to me um, I mean that that's that's one thing, um, but there is no for those who are who are heading into a trial, a trial that doesn't seem to be measurable. It's a cavern they're entering, and they don't know they don't know what size this cavern is, or or if they'll be able to find a way out again. You know that's where the promises that Jesus makes in his covenant, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You know, no temptation hath overtaken you, but such as is common to man, and God will, with the temptation, also provide the means of escape that you might be able to bear it. You know, those are, those are promises, and they are true. And, and, and this is the moment when you will see that to be true. Thank you so much, Dr. Thomas, for taking time out of what is an extraordinarily busy time here at the church to be with us. Thank you.
You've been listening to 1A, a counseling ministry of First Presbyterian Church. We encourage you to listen to all of our episodes, which you can find on our webpage, which is firstprescolumbia.org forward slash 1A. You can also check us out on all your favorite podcast applications, such as iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, then subscribe. Also, don't forget to tell your friends and family about us as well. If you have comments, questions, or an issue that you'd like us to wrestle with, contact us. You can contact us via email at 1A at firstprezcolumbia.org. That's 1A at firstprezcolumbia.org. Or on Twitter at 1A Podcast. That's at 1A Podcast. Or you can call us by phone, 803 281 1795. That's 803 281 1795. We look forward to seeing you next week and hope that this material has helped you to live out the gospel for each other and for the kingdom. Until then, God bless. Thank you.